turn with me in your Bible or look on the screen, open your app, whatever it is. I want you to have the scripture before you that I feel led to lead us in today is a messianic scripture in Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there's no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he is not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They will seek the Lord and will praise him. May your hearts live forever. 
all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. At the most climactic moment in Jesus' life, he cries out the first words of this psalm. And we must remember, though, I mean, it's easy to forget that in those days, they didn't have chapter numbers. They didn't have verses and numbers. They didn't even really have titles for a lot of the books. The way they referred to a book or a chapter was quoting the first words of it. So when Jesus cries out Psalm 22 on the cross, that verse, he was saying this, that this Psalm is what I'm all about. This Psalm, Psalm 22 reveals what I'm here to do and what I'm doing right now. So if this is true, this could be the most important quote that Jesus has ever made. This reveals the essence of Jesus, number one. And secondly, we see this, if Jesus is the most important single human figure in the history of the world, which we believe, then anyone who lives in this world can understand what's going on in it. They need to understand this psalm. The way to understand this psalm, I believe, in Psalm 22 is to ask three questions. Number one, what is the mystery of this psalm? What is the solution to this mystery? What does it mean practically for us? So let's look at the mystery of this psalm because it is very mysterious, being predated good 600 plus years before Christ on the cross. Now, the first thing we need to see is how incredibly mysterious the psalm is as it reads. It's enormously mysterious and it's difficult writing. This is a psalm of David, specifically. I want you to notice a couple of things that we're gonna explain that are really almost inexplicable. First, there's this inexplicable juridical nature of David's treatment. What's happening to him in this psalm that he's writing? In verse 6 through 8, we see he is out in public where people are jeering at him. In verse 17, they're gloating and they're scorning him. He's dying of thirst in verse 15 so that his tongue is swollen up and it's begun to choke him. He's so emaciated in verse 17 that we read that you can see his bones and count every one of them. In verse 16, he's been pierced in his hands and his feet, either by a sword or by a shaft or by a spear. What is really happening to him? And what we see is this is an actual execution, but not just any execution. It's a public execution. 
And the clincher to this interpretation is verse 18, where it says this, they cast lots for my garments. You see, back then when a criminal was executed, the executioners got the clothes that they were wearing. Now, the reason of this is an incredible mystery where it, in the world was King David ever being executed. Where did King David actually have a public trial? Where was he executed at? We know more about David's life in the scriptures than any other ancient history, an ancient figure. And there's nothing about this here in there at all. In fact, how could there be? How could, as we've seen and we know about David, the greatest king in all of Israel ever come to this kind of situation? In fact, we have to be careful not to read what we have today back into those days. It's dangerous. If you overthrew a king back then, you didn't have a public trial like we have seen today. You didn't bring him in for this trial and have a jury and judge and have that kind of sort of thing. You just had a coup. You killed him. And then you yourself sat on the throne. In other words, not only did this never happen to David, but it couldn't have happened to David. That's not all. Not only do we have this inexplicably juridical nature of his treatment, and different than jurisdictional, it's juridical. It means that the system that they're in it, the execution, how it's administered, we never saw this. We also never saw this submissiveness of David ultimately in this kind of treatment. If you read the book of Psalms, in fact, just the Psalm 20 and 21 before, one thing you know about David is he never took injustice lying down. Never, never, never did he do it. He's always crying out, as we see in the Psalms, for justice. He's always crying out that God would smash the perpetrator's teeth or other things. He's always saying things that are a little harsh to our ears. None of that is here in this psalm though. Even though this is the most extreme situation, we see anywhere in any of the psalms, the most extreme sense of injustice. There's not a word crying out to God to smash and destroy his perpetrators. So we see this inexplicable nature of his treatment, the, the submissiveness of David to the treatment. And of course, lastly, the inexplicable absence of God in the statement. In verse four and five, historically, it says, if you cry in faith to God, God will hear you. David says this often in the Psalms, God will hear you. He's not far from you, but God is treating David in this Psalm as if he was faithless. God in verse one is not even hearing him. He's treating him as if somebody's, he's not. But the most inexplicable part of all the Psalms is really in the ending. This is why it's such a mystery. In verse 20 and 21, David is in essence saying this, deliver me from death, deliver my life from the sword, rescue me. Then in verse 22, he's taking it as if this deliverance is going to happen or has already happened. He says, I will declare your name. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has listened to his cry for help. 
In other words, in verse 22 and following, we see that David says, I will be delivered from death. I have been delivered from death. But look at the results. It's mysterious because verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families, nations will bow before him. It's a mystery. David says, I was about to be executed in this Psalm, but God delivered me from death. And because of that, all the nations of earth will be converted. The poor nations, verse 26, and the rich nations in verse 29. What he's saying is as a result of my deliverance, instead of one little racial ethnic group of Jews worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that all of the nations of the earth will ultimately be doing that. Does he really have the audacity to say this? Not just to say it's the deliverance, but that he's going to lead a mass of conversion of peoples to the ends of the earth to the endless generations, and they will remember his deliverance as king. In verse 30 and 31, it says, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord, for he has done it. It's the mystery. How could David possibly imagine that his deliverance from death, no matter how heroic, no matter how dramatic could possibly lead to the conversion of all the nations of the earth. Do you see that ultimately in this Psalm on the face of it? As it is read, it is an absolute enigma. It's unbelievably mysterious. How in the world could or did the original hearers understand it and read it? They had no idea what this was. It was very mysterious. We read it in hindsight, but imagine a Jew 580 BC reading this. What's the solution to this mystery then? Well, there's only one that I know. There's only one way to account for this Psalm and the prophetic nature of it. And that's to believe ultimately what the scriptures say and what Peter says in Acts 2.31. He in essence says this, being a prophet, King David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying is that David was suffering and he was meditating and reflecting on his suffering. But as he did this, as he meditated on it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he got prophetic insight into a greater David, a greater king who was gonna actually have greater suffering and ultimate greater abandonment from God, but also greater deliverance that would lead to an everlasting kingdom. In other words, when Jesus cried this out on the cross, he says this, there's absolutely no possible way to make sense of Psalm 22 unless you understand it's about me. You will only be able to make sense of it if you understand that. So what is this great cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tell us about who Jesus is. I want to give you a few things here. The first, it tells us about the infinity of Jesus's sufferings. If you went through our journey to the cross, you got to go through those emotional torment. Even the betrayal, if anybody in this room has been rejected, dejected, betrayed, You got to see that, the betrayal that Jesus also endured, not to mention the physical pain. 
But Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he screamed it, you have to realize what a departure that was because here's the deal. Up to that point, Jesus had been getting all kinds of things happening to him as we saw in the journey to the cross, but he didn't say a word. He had been flogged, he had been beaten, he had been mocked. He'd had thorns driven into his skull. He actually had nails driven through his hands and all during that time, he was quiet, the scripture says. He was silent. He had that kind of poise, he just took it. In fact, the text says he was like a lamb that is silent before his shearers. So he never said a thing, all that suffering. Have you ever stubbed your toe in the middle of the night? You probably weren't silent. All that pain, scripture doesn't record him saying anything. He could take it. Then suddenly he screams. And that means something new is going on. Something, some kind of agony, some kind of pain that's beyond physical, that's beyond nails, beyond the thorns, beyond all that, because he never cried out, my hands, my hands, does he? He never cried out, my feet, my feet, my skull, my skull. He cries out, my God, my God. He's experiencing something infinitely beyond, worse than the physical suffering. It is total separation from God. We really need to understand this and how powerful this is. The Bible says, we know ultimately that we are all made for relationships. As bad as it is to lose all your money, as bad as it is to lose your health, there's nothing like losing love. There's nothing like, even worse, losing the love of a lifetime. Counselors, psychologists will tell you this, that there's nothing more devastating than to lose this lifetime love. But look at Jesus. His relationship with the Father is not just 30 or 40 years old of a love relationship. They've loved one another from all eternity. This isn't two parties whose bodies have been pressed together to express love, but they've been actually wrapped up in each other's souls literally for all of eternity. Think about that. Here's the son who lived utterly for the father, who lived wholly for the father, and he's lost him. And just as this physical pain is infinitely less than the pain of a lost love, so the pain of loss human relationship is infinitely less than this. We know the agony of loss in human love. What must this have been like? I've had grandparents that were married for 50 years, lose their love and not know what to do, how to function, much less an eternal time and love. See, scripture says this, that we're made for the presence of God and we need the presence spiritually. We need the presence like a flower needs sunlight or it will ultimately fade. And you know, and I know that if the sun were to suddenly go off completely, every living organism on this earth would immediately freeze 
and would be destroyed. When Jesus lost the Father's presence at that instant, Jesus was completely engulfed in absolute freezing, eternal darkness. His soul unraveled infinitely. He experienced absolute, infinite spiritual disruption. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first thing we learn is of this infinite suffering that helps us deal with our suffering knowing Jesus understands. Second thing we learn from this cry of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems that he's losing his grip completely, but he's not. It's exactly the opposite. You know what it means to say my God and what it means to Jesus. It's, it's a language of covenant faithfulness. When God got the people ultimately out of Israel together at Sinai, he looked down from Mount Sinai, the scripture says, and he says this, I'm going to enter into an intimate, personal relationship with you and a covenant that is intimate with you. You will be my people, it says, and I will be your God. So when Jesus is calling him my God, it's ultimately the language of this covenant loyalty. It's faithfulness language. It's intimacy. If you overhear someone say, like my wife, my Casey, or my Dewan, I love Dewan, my Dewan in our church, you may not know who they are at all, but one thing you will know is they must be either my children or spouse. There's some kind of intimacy with the my language. And without that, it's just another person. You know, the direction to the first Adam was this, obey God and you will live. But the direction of the second Adam, Jesus, is obey God and he'll crush you to powder. And he still did it for us. We see this infinite suffering, this melodic faithfulness in why have you forsaken me, my God, my God. When you put it together, you see how infinitely beautiful God is. You get to see the sufferings, the, the infinite faithfulness, and then ultimately we get to see this, the infinite redemption. Because here's someone living this perfect, faithful life that we should have lived. This is the gospel message. And at the very same moment, dying the death that faithless people should die for us in our place. As he cries out, my God, my God. The most dramatic of all drama themes is the idea of the great substitution of the rescuer. What does it mean to be a rescuer? A rescuer is in safety and then someone else is in danger. So a rescuer gives up their safety and goes into the danger so that in danger, the other person can have safety. And very often the ultimate sacrifice or the ultimate substitution is the rescuers who give up their life so that those who are about to die get theirs back. Now this is the way it is in all the most moving stories, movies, books, whether they're true or not. 
there are these true stories. I, I mean, I think about here in Houston, the Travis Scott concert back in November, where there was reports of a dad who put his child on his shoulders so the child wouldn't be crushed while he himself was crushed to death by the crowd. This idea of a rescuer, what did he do? He gave up his safety and went into danger. He gave up his life, went into death, so the one in danger could ultimately have safety. Of course, this is true of all stories, all narratives, even the most ancient ones and the best ones. There's a really beautiful poem called The Sacrifice by George Herbert. And in this, um, Jesus is speaking in first person from the cross. He's hanging on this tree and there's this one stanza. It's, it's kind of a longer, one of his longest poems. But there's this one stanza where he's speaking to the people and he's thinking about Adam and Eve. And he says this, Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me was ever grief like mine. The scripture says that the cross is actually this tree of life for everyone because it was the tree of death for Jesus. That's the ultimate substitute. And that's what we have here, this cry that we're studying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have infinite faithfulness, infinite suffering, so we could have this infinite redemption. And we take hold of that, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, you get to take hold of that. And God will take you into his family. So practically, what does this mean for us? And this is where I want you to key in because a lot of us know the story. Maybe it's the first time you've put together Psalm 22, but what does this mean for you practically? That's one of the things we heard the most in Journey to the Cross when people are saying, it's just so more personal than I thought. A lot of people, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I know about Easter, but when it impacts you personally is how you are changed, transformed. The word repent, metanoia, metamorphosis, a change has occurred. How does this cry affect our personal transformation? First, and, and I want you to realize in this cry, you get to see the gospel story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you see like the real key to change, not behavior transformation or modification, but real internal change from the inside out. The cry on the cross, it does this, it forces me to see the God of the Bible, not of the world or some made up idea, but Jesus, who he really is. And here's what we see. We see absolute holy and an absolute loving God at the same time. I, I can't really say it better. Um, Everybody knows like your temperament, your psychology, your religious background, your church background, wherever you came from, your culture, really every culture, every temperament, every church tends to basically see God as more holy than loving or more loving than holy, but he's both. In our church, we say we don't subtract, we have to add. And he's holy and he's loving, grace and truth, faith and and works. 
and to have the and creates transfer, transformation. And only because, here it is, he's both of these, and only when he is both is when we fully grasp it and when things really come together in your life and it kind of smacks you in the face and it really changes you. You see, why have you forsaken me means he was so holy that Jesus had to die. But my God, my God, the faithfulness covenant language means that Jesus was so loving, he was willing to die. In other words, here's the deal. This cry shows us the absolute holiness and absolute love of God at the same time. And that's the key. So if you're more of a conservative temperament, typically, stereotypically, you tend to think of God as basically holy and righteous. So here's what you do. You tend to think that if a person is saved, they're saved because they, are, they live a holy, moral, and righteous life. But then when you think of your relationship with God, it doesn't fully move you. It doesn't fill you with joy and tears. It doesn't melt your heart. It doesn't galvanize you. It doesn't exhilarate you with love. You say, well, sure, yeah, of course. You know, I believe in God. I'm trying to live a good life. I can't tell you how many haircuts I've gotten where I hear that. On the other hand, what if you're more kind of on the liberal temperament? You tend to think of God as mainly loving. You say, I believe in a God who just loves everyone, accepts everyone, no matter how they live. You would say, therefore, if a person is saved, they're saved because God just loves them and forgives everyone, no matter who they are. But if that's the case, and you think of your relationship with God, it doesn't really fully move you. It doesn't fill you with tears. It doesn't shock you. It doesn't galvanize you. It doesn't exhilarate you. You say this, well, sure, sure, I believe in God and I have a relationship with God. He loves me. He loves everybody. That doesn't really move you. It doesn't change you. It might change some behavior, but it doesn't melt your heart personally. You see, there's this moralistic God of some people that says you have to be good. But then there's a biblical God that says, just trying your best actually isn't enough. There's this relativistic God of people who say, oh, God just loves everyone. But that's not as loving as the God who, because he was holy and loving, gave us grace. You see, because he's loving, there's this free grace for us. But because he's holy, it was costly grace infinitely costly grace. It's not this, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, cheap grace that we just take for granted, but it changes us. So when I just hear, oh, God is holy and demanding from some people, I might out of fear listen to him, but it doesn't change my heart. And if I hear, oh, God is just very, very loving and he just accepts everybody, that's nice and it might inspire me, but it doesn't change me in the heart. But when I know that I'm the recipient of this kind of costly grace, when I know Jesus went to hell's heart for me and was loving and obedient for me there, that's, that's the key. That's what changes us. That's the my God faithfulness. That's galvanizing.
And here's why it changes, because here's the deal. At the very same time, on one hand, it humbles me out of my pride and self-centeredness, and it affirms me out of my inferiority and self-pity at the exact same time. It makes me hate my sins, not just grace to cover, but hate my sins because it led to his death. He became sin for me, even though he did not sin. But here, on the other hand, it forbids me to hate myself because he did it for me to make me free. This is how he transforms us. There's nothing that changes our understanding of God who is absolutely holy and absolutely loving at the same time. There's nothing like it. It will pull every psychological category there is. There are no inferiority complexes. There are no superiority complexes. You're completely, utterly off the map. You're off the scale. Understanding the cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the key to personal transformation. It's the number one key. To not take advantage of his grace but also not to hate yourself so much that you can't live out of his grace. This cry gives us comfort and it gives us another resource. When he says, you have forsaken me, we've all felt that abandonment from God, haven't we? Have you ever felt that? In the midst of your suffering or your pain, maybe even right now, I don't feel anything. I feel abandoned by God. We're constantly feeling like we're forsaken like we're abandoned, especially in suffering. The great reformer Martin Luther said this about Psalm 22. He says this, Psalm 22 has helped me out of difficulties from which no king or ruler could have ever freed me. In other words, no law, no amount of money could have ever fully freed me. And I can't say I know exactly what he means, but knowing a little bit about Martin Luther and my studies, reading biographies about him, I know what kind of person he was. First of all, he liked to cuss. He liked to drink. He's a very interesting fellow. But he also had this temperament where he had a trouble holding on to radiant and positive feelings. He didn't have a lot of positive emotions. And he had trouble, he would say, feeling God's presence. I know a lot of us have that same kind of trouble, especially in moments of pain. Very often we're feeling like God has ultimately abandoned us, especially in our timing. You know what I mean? God's timing is not our timing. Abraham got Isaac, but it was not in his timing at all. It was God's timing. And in the midst of that gap of time, we feel abandoned. So we're always feeling like Jesus, forsaken and abandoned. But this tells us something, something we can relate with Jesus about. That Jesus was abandoned because he became sin. God had to pour our sins on him and he was abandoned saying, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus was truly deserted by God so that you and I are only apparently deserted by God. He ultimately got the abandonment that we deserve 
so that we can know God will never truly abandon us. The full darkness and abandonment of the presence of God that we deserve was on Jesus. Because of your physiology, your psychology, your sense of timing, whatever it is, you feel abandoned, but Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? Ultimately displays the abandonment that he got that I should have gotten. Jesus was truly deserted, so you are only apparently so. Jesus was truly deserted so that you will never be. When we are apparently feeling deserted by God, which happens often, and sometimes we can't just keep loving him, but we hold on, we read our Bible, we pray, come to church, we get in community, we do the things that we do because we know that we are not ultimately abandoned. This Psalm was written some 600 years before the death of Jesus. And yet David only got to see a vision, a prophetic vision of what now we get to experience fully. The holiness, the faithfulness, the love of a savior, the life of God in us out the death of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. God, we don't want to move so fast that we miss you. That you have a moment for us to fully feel, to fully experience, to fully believe. That your word says, no height nor depth, nothing can separate us from the love of God because of what Jesus did. Lord, let us look to that cross this day that we call Good Friday, God. It was bad for you, but so good for us. Let us not go too fast, not hurry too quickly, not miss the opportunity to truly be amazed at the faithfulness of Jesus to you and the full abandonment where you took sin seriously, where you took justice seriously, but you placed it on the only person that ever lived that was fully justified. Or David says in another Psalm, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, but that's because he never saw Jesus on a cross. The righteous was forsaken, but only once for all. Lord, let that marinate in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.